listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look at the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, here as always with the wonderful Jeff Simmons. How's it going, Jeff? Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you too, Celeste. I'm just not happy. It's a dreary day today, but at least you warm my heart. Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, I am always happy to be here with you in any weather and glad to be joined by all the wonderful listeners, of course, of WBAI, uh, naturally overseas, of course. And we heard a little bit about this uh, during the news break. We're watching all the developments in Ukraine moment by moment, millions of things to talk about there. But, uh, you know, it happens, Jeff, in my reporting career, some of the stuff I've been doing lately, a lot of work on media analysis, media criticism. So one of the things that's really grabbed my attention in the past few days is the story of that protester, that woman uh, who jumped up and held up this anti-war sign on Russian state-sponsored television. Uh, I'm sure you, you know, lots of people have probably seen and heard footage of this woman. Her name is uh, Marina Asyanikova. She's an editor at Russia's Channel One, and she stood up behind the presenter with a sign that said no war and told viewers, basically, they were being fed a bunch of lies and propaganda. So she's been fined for, quote-unquote, organizing an illegal protest, but we'll see what happens next with her. And she's just one of thousands of Russians who have been arrested and punished for speaking out against this war, Jeff. Yeah. And, you know, as you've been focusing on the Ukraine, you've been watching, I've, I've been uh, following more local news, uh, some developments today. You know, one that I had heard about, I don't know if our listeners know about this. I think it was in the Times today, uh, but I'd heard about it a few months ago from a docent. Uh, but Celeste, remember the 9-11 Tribute Museum in Lower Manhattan, not to be confused with the much better known National September 11th Memorial Museum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the news is out there. I mean, they, during the pandemic, had to close for some time. And so it looks as if they're now going to uh, close for good. Uh, that's what they're saying, that they're holding on by a string or hanging on by a string right now. It's a small staff of 10. The reason I bring this up for you folks is, you know, this is right at the site, down at the site, the 9-11 Tribute Museum. I, over the years, as a reporter even, I had uh, covered some of it just in that first six months before I left New York One. But I worked in lower Manhattan and there was a heavy visitorship. But this is just one of the other casualties of this pandemic that this museum is going to be closing. The other thing I'm following, Celeste, and I know that this is something that uh, you might be obsessed about, will he or won't he? Will uh, Andrew Cuomo decide to throw his hat into the ring and run against Kathy Hochul for governor? Yes, this is what's been discussed this week. And so uh, apparently there are a number of people around him who are making phone calls. He's claiming he's getting phone calls to encourage him to run. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But I bring this up mm -hmm. in a segue to what you're going to talk about, Celeste, because yesterday... Yeah. Governor Hochul signed a package of bills that will strengthen protections against workplace harassment and discrimination. And among those things was a free hotline for workplace sexual harassment complaints that would bring all public employees in the state under the state's human rights law. 
and prohibit employers from releasing personnel files in retaliation against employees. And of course, Hochul signed this legislation at a Women's History Month event at the Javits Center here in Manhattan. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great, Jeff. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. And, you know, these are all things that we should be talking about that we have to talk about during Women's History Month. Women's History Month is certainly a time to commemorate leaders uh, among women, uh, particularly here in the United States. And we're going to be doing some of that here on WBAI. Uh, you know, I was just thinking the other day, you know, my mom always says, quote, you know, every day should be Mother's Day, quote unquote, in the sense we should always have respect for our parents, for our elders. But you could certainly say the same thing about women overall, you know. You know, there's never a bad time to pause, remember, and appreciate the contributions and the accomplishments of the women in our lives and our history, Jeff. WBAI is celebrating Women's History Month in lots of great ways, and you could go right to women.wbai.org, and you can make a contribution to Free Speech Radio and check out some of the amazing thank you gifts that we have available for your donation of just only $15 a month. You can give more, but $15 a month, that's all we're asking for. And if you do that, you become a BAI buddy by doing that in the name of this show or any show you like. That will now include a wonderful women's history audio collection, the classic black WBAI tote bag and more. So be sure to go to women.wbai.org today to show your gratitude for women and, of course, to support this station. So here on Driving Forces, we always focus on politics and public policy. Uh, in honor of Women's History Month, today we're going to be taking a special look at how far women have come in politics and, importantly, how far we have to go. Uh, women, of course, have made enormous strides when it comes to gaining elective office. Really amazing if you stop for just a second and think about the fact that it's only been about 100 years since we even got the right to vote. And there are lots and lots of excellent ways to learn about women in politics politics, historically, how they're doing today. But one of my personal absolute go-tos is the Center for American Women and Politics, which is part of the Eagle, Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers. And its mission, it says on its website, you can check this out, and it's very useful, is, quote, to promote greater knowledge and understanding about the role of women in American politics, enhance women's influence in public life, and expand the diversity of women in politics and government. And the center is also part of the Institute for Women's Leadership, which is a group of eight Rutgers units doing research, education and action related to women's leadership. So in short, the Center for American Women in Politics is a really rich source of scholarship on the progress women have made and the progress we have yet to make. Uh, and that's why to talk about some of this, uh, you know, how we're doing and how far we have to go. We're going to be joined right now by Kelly Dittmar. She's an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University. Camden, and she's the director of research at the Center for American Women and Politics, where she researches gender and American political institutions. She's the co-author of A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters, and she's the author of Navigating Gendered Terrain, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Campaigns. And I can tell you honestly, she is somebody who has been invaluable to me in my reporting for a long time on women in politics. Really glad she's here with us today. Professor Kelly Dittmar, welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much, Les, and thank you for all you've done to kind of put the spotlight on this issue. It's always been great to work with you. 
So maybe to start off, I know you well. I've talked to you a bunch of times. I know uh, a bit about the work you do. But maybe for people who are, are just joining us now, tell us a little bit about how you came to make this your focus of all the things you could have chosen to study and to become an expert on. Uh, what made this line of research so interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I don't have a great origin story. I always joke that our director, Debbie Walsh, has a great story of kind of being at political protests and rallies with her mom as a kid. For me, my family wasn't particularly political, but the kind of growth of my own feminism over time, especially in college, belief in gender equality just motivated me to better understand the history and present position of women in politics because I could see very well, obviously, the connections between women's equality generally and women's positions in and power within political institutions. So I I could grasp that. Um, And then I'm a researcher, both kind of in my mind and in my training, and the reality of women in politics really presents a lot of puzzles. Um, most notably why women are over 50% of the population and well below that among elected officials. Um, and add to that the many ways we know already that women have been integral to political movements and progress, um, but then trying to understand, well, where does that lag happen between being key to activism and community engagement and all of that and not being represented equally at these most powerful tables of political leadership. And so that kind of got me really interested in this work. And then thankfully, I ended up at Rutgers in part purposefully because I knew that the Center for American Women in Politics was here. And this is an institution that, you know, in this year, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary. So COP has been doing this work um, really since you know, the early days of, of feminist movement of in the 1970s to try to both... I, show this problem, reveal the problem of women's political underrepresentation and address it, you know, try to change the change the face of public leadership. And Kelly, it's wonderful to have you back on WBAI. I'm thinking about reflecting on the last elections we had here in New York and how the city council now is a majority, uh, majority women. Uh, but I'm just curious more broadly, and we'll get more into New York in a few moments, but overall, how well are women doing in elective politics relative to how much of the population they make up? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the first line of, of most times I'm presenting or talking, right, which is despite making up over 50 percent of the population, women hold less than a third of elected positions. And this is across levels of office. So I'll just kind of rattle them off. Um, women are 27.1% of Congress. They're 30.6% of statewide elected executives. They're 31.1% of state legislators, 25% of mayors in cities over 30,000, 31% of mayors in the top 100 most populous cities. So you see a consistency in women's representation, but that consistency is in terms of underrepresentation. Um, and I think it's also important to note here that women's political representation varies by party, with women represented more equitably among elected Democrats and Republicans, and it also varies by race and ethnicity. And, you know, anybody can check out our website because we have all of these breakdowns. But just to note in terms of women of color, it's important to note that the history of representation for women of color in particular is, is a much more recent one due to all of the, you know, historical exclusion and marginalization that we have seen and then standing at that intersection of both race and gender. And so a notable example of that is the fact that we have zero black women 
in the U.S. Senate that the one Latina that we have in the U.S. Senate was the first Latina ever elected to the Senate in 2016. So you can kind of rattle off this very recent history of firsts um, for women uh, of color in American politics. We're talking to Kelly Dittmar. She's the director of research for the Center for American Women and Politics. And um, I wanted to ask you, let's let's talk about New York for just a minute here, because I think that at least, you know, I think as New Yorkers, we kind of have this sense of ourselves as being sort of more progressive or more enlightened or something. But uh, can you give us any sense of how do we really stack up again, sort of how well are women doing here relative to what percentage of the population they make up? Sure. Um, you know, New York ranks 15th in the nation for the percentage of women in its state legislature. Um, so women hold about 34% of those seats. And, of course, you have um, important leadership in terms of Senator Andrew Stewart-Cousins as majority leader and Senate President Pro Tem. That kind of distinguishes the state among states with women at the higher level of state legislative leadership. I should know in terms of partisan differences I mentioned before, 89% of the women legislators in New York are Democrats. Um, so you see that persistent as well in, in the state. Um, women are about 35% of the congressional delegation, one of two of the U.S. senators. Um, and then again, you know, you were talking before, um, you know, notably with Governor Hochul as the first woman governor and Tish James as the first black woman in uh, elected statewide as attorney general, you know, that's two of four. New York is a state that has fewer statewide elected executive positions, so women hold half of those. Um, so in these ways, we've seen certainly recent progress, and New York is faring pretty well comparatively um, to women across the country. Um, but I, I, I can't help but note that, you know, it, it, what you were talking about right before we started, I mean, the fact that you have um, Governor Cuomo kind of, or former governor, you know, coming back and saying, well, maybe I'm going to run, um, is just does lead to questions about the culture and kind of what is deemed acceptable or what is disqualifying or not disqualifying in the state's politics. And I think if he does decide to run, that'll give us a better sense of, of where the state stands kind of culturally in terms of the acceptance of and um, support for women in politics. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're marking Women's History Month with Kelly Dittmar, Director of Research for the Center of for American Women in Politics. You know, one thing I'm reflecting on as you're speaking is one of the last interviews that I had done in studio at WBAI before the pandemic was with the author of a book called C. Jane Wynn, uh, Caitlin Moscatello, and I had in my new assembly member, Catalina Cruz. The lines were just redistricted here, so she's my new assembly member. And she talked about the challenges that she and many women, particularly women of color, face in running for office. And when we you cite those statistics, the lower percentage rates c compared to the size of the uh, women in our population, what are the most common themes you hear about the obstacles that women face when seeking elective office? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are many different and they're going to vary for the women. You know, I think that's why it's so important to, to really dig into, obviously, in more time than we have today, to dig into the you know, distinct realities for women of different communities and backgrounds. But I think there are some overlapping um, challenges. One, one set of challenges um, are structural challenges, meaning 
you know, women haven't been part of the political infrastructures, if you will, in, in most or all uh, of our states. And so that means that the folks who often are decision makers and recruiters, um, those who are allocating funds um, and, and so money in our campaigns, um, those who are important endorsements, have been historically often white men. And so women come into a structure that wasn't sort of built for and by them. I mean, that's most notably evident when you start to look into office holding. We joke at COP that, you know, you see state state legislatures that didn't even have a women's bathroom because there wasn't the expectation that women would be a part of the elected class. And so I think those structural challenges that's tied to things like um, a lack of term limits, et cetera, where you have incumbency benefiting, again, historically white men who have held these offices before, that's starting to change. Um, money, money as one of those challenges is certainly one that women raise with us all of the time. And we see mixed findings on that. You know, women are capable of raising the same amount of men as men, um, but they're still telling us and telling researchers and, and demonstrating that it can often be harder. In other words, getting money in smaller amounts, donations in smaller amounts, having to do more asking to get to that level. And then lastly, I would say, I mean, I'm just hitting on only a few here, but then I think there's a, a general sort of culture of stereotypes and expectations that women face that are gendered and they are kind of intersectional as well. Um, in that politics for so long has been associated with men and masculinity that when women enter these institutions or are running for office, they're kind of conflicted with what we talk about as rolling congruity. There's an expectation that they meet the sort of masculine expectations of being an office holder, but they also have to be woman enough, right, to sort of meet the feminine expectations of their gender. Um, that is a challenge that men haven't had to uh, that had that's an incongruity that men haven't faced in politics and makes it slightly easier for them to be assumed uh, qualified and expected to lead. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I wanted to ask you something that's sort of related to these these stereotypes and these traditional views, but also related to fundraising kind of brings it all together, uh, which is, I, I think, I think you and I have actually talked about this, um, you know, that men never have to get that question on the campaign trail. Well, how are you going to balance being an elected official with having a family? You know, no, nobody ever yeah. asked some guy that question. Right. It's just it doesn't happen. Um but uh, in 2018, uh, a woman named Luba Gretchen Shirley, who is actually a candidate for Congress from New York, uh, brought her case to the Federal Election Commission, and she got the green light to use campaign funds for child care. And I'm wondering, since then, and she's since then uh, did not win that election, but uh, since then has started a, a group called Vote Mama, talking about women with children who want to get into public life. C- c- do you know anything about what the effect was of that decision? Has that had, you know, further reverberations within uh, politics? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. We've certainly watched and monitored this, and we don't have good data on, you know, how many folks have actually used this, right? What we do know, I mean, the FEC is a whole, you know, puzzle in itself in terms of navigating, right? Because that, in some ways, she was petitioning, right, a case. And so it's this is kind of a norm for the FEC, and then you have precedent. Um, all of this is to say, though, what I think more so than knowing how many candidates have per- perhaps used 
um, this ability to use money for childcare funds. I think what it did even more so was it raised a conversation and a, a very public conversation about the difficulties of campaigning as a mother of young children in particular, and, and arguably a candidate uh, with young children. There was actually men before her that had all used some campaign funds, gotten an exception to use campaign funds for child care. Um, but I think it started a bigger conversation that we needed to have about how does the gender division of labor, right, um, cause for there to be additional hurdles for women who may want to run for office, who just don't see it as possible. Because I think too often we talk about the fact that, like, women must not want to run. There's not enough women running, so they must just not want to. Or, or, or they're just not confident enough. Well, the reality is that, yes, yeah, sure, there may be some of that. But there's also they're smart and strategic <laughs> folks, and they're looking at the fact that they're already holding multiple jobs because they have a second shift of labor, which is caregiving. And then they're trying to align that with running for political office and then perhaps serving in political office. And the structures that be, including the financial structures, just don't align at all with making this amenable to their lifestyle as it is today. And so I think beyond that FEC ruling on childcare, I think we also have to look at like the gender friendliness, if you will, of our institutions. You know, when do legislatures meet? When do city councils meet? Um, do they offer any form of childcare? Um, how do we support folks with young children versus those who decide to wait until later, which skews our representation? So there's a, a million sort of questions that I think just that case and her willingness to come out very publicly with it helped to raise in the public um, discourse and make us think more seriously about how we are maybe less explicitly excluding a class of people from political office. We're talking with Kelly Detmar, Director of Research for the Center for American Women at Pol and Politics, which is part of the Eagleton Institute of Rutgers. And uh, I want to ask you for a little bit of a preview, if, if we can have one, some crystal ball stuff maybe, uh, about the 2022 midterms. But before we get to that, I don't, I don't want to uh, just limit the conversation to talking about people who are seeking office, women who are seeking office. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about women as voters, because we all know that, you know, Women have, correct me if I'm wrong, women in general are more participants in uh, the the election process than men. Is that true, that women vote at higher rates than men? Is that yep, accurate? Yeah, women, we always say women outnumber and outvote men. Oh, okay, great. So, um, but... <laughs> But women, I'm fine with it. Women don't vote in a monolithic way, though, right? We see variations by race or geography or, or age. Can can you just give us a little bit of, of that picture? What do we see? Yeah, I think I think that's so key. You know, we often talk about, or I should say we, many people talk about the vote, and that just doesn't exist. What we do see and where kind of the women's vote has emerged from is that women are more consistently voting democratically and identifying with the Democratic Party than men. So that's where we talk about the gender gap in voting, the gender gap in partisan identification. And the reason why I think that is still worth noting is that persists across, for example, racial and ethnic groups. We still see women within racial and ethnic groups being more likely than their male counterparts to both vote for and support the Democratic Party. So there is that much to be said, but we certainly know among then women not all women are Democrats, and certainly some of that variation is coming at the intersection of, 
uh, axes of identity that you mentioned already, you know, race, education, especially age, class, generation. Um, and so while, while we need to kind of be careful about thinking of uh, women as a monolithic group, we can look within those groups and start to see trends. And one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years is, well, what about white women? You know, white women voted for Trump and white women, you know, um, as if that was a surprise. <laughs> we knew that white women had been voting leaning Republican for for many decades. The question and the change has been looking at the difference, for example, on education, right? So there is a, a, a divergence between college-educated white women and non-college-educated white women. That's just one example of why it's important, I would argue, to really dig deep into groups of women voters to better understand not only where they stand party-wise, but also what's motivating their behavior. And certainly this year, we're going to see a lot of interesting things that might be motivating women in slightly different ways than men as it pertains to COVID, as it pertains to education issues and legislation that's being put out there. I mean, those are, are things that have historically been and will continue to be especially important and, and prioritized by women voters. You know, as you're speaking, Kelly, I'm also thinking of the Supreme Court and the political leanings of the Supreme Court or well, the conservative leanings of that. And if that, in your view, is also uh, motivating more women to run, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking very locally here why I, when I've talked with New York City Council candidate, uh, female candidates and why they've run here in the city, there's, they're, it, they're not just looking at issues in the community or the city, but they're also thinking of what's going on nationally. So I'm curious if that, if you're hearing that as well, that that's another factor. People are considering what, what decisions we may see in the next few months from the Supreme Court. And if that's influencing women to want to run because they feel like it's going to get much more, uh, much tougher as far as our rights. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would distinguish this like slightly in, in two ways. One to say yes on what I think you're characterizing, which is a sense of urgency. Um, that was certainly what we saw motivating some women who had never thought about running before, or not even those who had never thought about it, but maybe were going to wait a little while to run and then decided to run in 2018, right? And that sense of urgency was coming from a perception of, you know, exclusively among progressive women, that the rights that they had seen uh, gained in the previous administration were now going to be and were under threat, and they needed to move from a more advocacy space to actually having a seat at the table. And I think that certainly the Supreme Court um, decisions of, of now legislation that we're seeing across the country when it comes to, you know, anti-LGBTQ rights, et cetera, that those are going to be motivating not only to women, but among those women who maybe were, again, engaged in some other way, but now are seeing the need to be in these legislatures or in, in these political bodies that are going to make important and critical decisions on the issues. Just one thing I want to note, though, on the Supreme Court decision, particularly as it pertains to Roe and abortion rights, that is a is a trickier issue in that it is Roe is motivating to women on both sides. Um, so we have certainly seen both throughout history um, and and to date that it's not necessarily that women um, are more motivated on Roe, right, or that they are especially not motivated in a, a specific direction. Um, that both conservative women and Democratic women 
are motivated and, and mobilized on the issue of abortion. Um, and that, honestly, it is more a party-based difference in how much they are motivated or in what ways they are motivated than it is a gender difference. So that's kind of an interesting uh, historical quip about about the abortion abortion as a political issue. And uh, Kelly Dittmar, uh, in the few moments that we have left here, I know that uh, sometimes people really hate these questions and, and I don't want to be that guy, but I kind of have to be that guy. I'm just curious, um, you know, without doing like the whole real like crystal ball thing, is there anything that you can tell us about trends we might be seeing or anything that we can sort of take with us from this chat looking forward into the 2022 midterms, specifically when it comes to women? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, again, we're kind of tracking this in real time at our website, which is cop.records.edu, so easy for folks to also follow along as we learn more. But I would say this, um, 2018 was a record year for women running and winning on the Democratic side of the aisle. 2020 was a record, a new record year for women running and winning in particular on the Republican side of the aisle. What we're watching in 2022 is to try to see if the overall increase continues in terms of women running at higher rates and certainly winning, and also on trying to understand what the party uh, trends will be. As of right now, and it's, it, as you noted, it's still really early, but as of right now, it doesn't look like, for example, at the House level, we might not even hit the record again. We might actually have a lower number. It's not you know, a huge indicator of um, a real slowing down, but it is notable that we had such big surges in the last two cycles that something is going on there. Um, but what we are seeing, at least at this point, is that Republican women are more likely than Democratic women as of right now to kind of set new records. Now, again, remember, their records have been really low. They've run at lower rates. They've held office at lower rates than Democratic women, so they're playing catch-up. But we do, as of right now, we're seeing them kind of continue that catch-up, at least at the candidate phase. And then just in terms of offices to watch, I mean, again, I would I would watch for black women running for the Senate and governor. These are positions uh, that they either held in few numbers or not at all in the terms of governor. Um, so we have many um, qualified incumbents. Uh, uh, competitive candidates to watch there. We have a record number of Latinas running for governor nationwide that is really important to watch. And then I would just add really watching the effects of redistricting as well in either creating opportunities for women or presenting challenges to some of the women who've been recently elected. So um, while we've seen all these recent gains, it also means these women are in some of the most competitive districts. And so we want to see if we sustain those um, gains as we go into the next cycle. And Kelly, if some of our listeners would like to find out more about you or the Center for American Women in Politics, where should they go? They can go to cawp.ruckers.edu, and you can find all sorts of facts and research there. And it also connects folks to our online database if they want to look at more specifically how women are doing in their states or at specific levels of office. Kelly Dittmore, thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz-Morston and myself, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI today. Thank you to you both. You've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your co-host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my amazing co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And Celeste, I did catch that you said, I hate to be that guy who asks this question. <laughs> was that, was that, that super guy. gendered, Jeff? Well, you yes. know.
I was I was that guy, but uh, this is Women's <laughs> History Month, so uh, we are going to try to avoid the gendered talk. Thanks for blowing me up on live radio, though. <laughs> I'll remember well, you that know on what? your birthday. I'm only cognizant of that more now, believe it or not, because of a TV show I watched where the host made a point in one of the recent seasons of saying he's going to stop saying, come on in, guys. Because uh-huh. it's, it's all genders who come in. But let me remind folks, if you're just tuning in this St. Patrick's Day, we want to also thank you so much for making a point of listening to Driving here, Forces here on WBAI because it's Women's History Month. And we just spoke with Kelly Dittmar, Director of Research at the Women's uh, at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers. We talked about how far women have come in elective office and in public life and how much further we have to go. But this is a great time to remind everyone that in order to keep bringing you these important conversations about these big topics, women's issues, safety in our city, our public schools, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, we need your help. Just take a few minutes today. Take a few moments today and go to WBAI.org and you can give as generously as you can to support this radio station. You can make a one, a one-time donation, or you can do what we really encourage you to do and become a BAI buddy. And that's where you make a recurring donation. You get to help keep free speech radio alive and well in New York. And we also have a special page. This month for Women's History Month, women.wbai.org. And if you go there, you can, you know, you can pay tribute to Women's History Month. You can give a donation of just $15 per month. You can give more. We'd like for you to give more, but you could also give $15 a month and you'll get a wonderful thank you gift. Our Women's History Audio Collection. It is jam packed with 79 hours of amazing listens showcasing women's history through restored vintage recordings that date back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting well before WBAI started. This goes back to 1949. So check it out at women.wbai.org. And it's really true that in a world of Twitter and TikToks and hot takes, WBAI is something different. It's a place you can come to hear and participate in, and we're going to get to that, real conversations with real people about real issues, whether you're interested in public policy or music or social justice or culture or news or all those things. WBAI has you covered in a thoughtful, meaningful, and unique way. So your donation of just $25 or more may Makes you a member of this station. That means you can participate in important votes that determine the future of free speech, independent radio in the greatest city in the world. And of course, constant reminder, do not forget, this does matter. Your gift is tax deductible. So give yourself a tax break on your next return and help us keep your radio station alive for another 60 years. Go to WBAI.org and just click on ways to donate. We live in difficult, complicated, but also kind of thrilling and exciting times. And WBAI is one way we can help each other make sense of what's going on, really listen to what other people are saying and have them really listen. Listen to us. So let's keep it going. Please take just a moment today. Go to go to WBAI.org and click ways to donate. Every gift help keeps free speech radio alive when we need it most. 
So as if you've been just tuning in, you're listening to WBAI New York. Uh, this is Driving Forces. We're your hosts, Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz-Marston. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. We have been talking today about women's history, especially about politics. And of course, that's all tied in with activism, which is even bigger than elections and sometimes has much longer lasting effects on our society. And as we mentioned earlier, WBAI has been presenting a series of special reports to commemorate Women's History Month, and we're about to share one of those with you. So uh, in this next brief segment, this next brief segment rather comes from the WBAI program, Joy of Resistance. I'm sure our loyal listeners know and love Joy of Resistance. And it talks about a familiar and controversial institution in the U.S., the Miss America pageant. Let's take a listen not burn their bras in the 1960s, though they did try. On September 7th, 1968, feminists led by New York radical women converged from around the country on Atlantic City to protest the Miss America beauty pageant contest. They called it a cattle auction. And they decried the sexist and racist beauty standards to which women were forced to conform. Activists invaded the hall where Miss America was being crowned and hung a women's liberation banner from the balcony. Outside, on the boardwalk, they set up a freedom trash can into which they threw, quote, instruments of female torture, such as girdles, high heels and bras. The plan was to burn these items, but it was stopped by police who invoked a local ordinance against making fires on the boardwalk. A reporter seeking a catchy headline dubbed the protesters bra burners and the name stuck. <laughs> here, we, here we are. Okay, the joys of live radio. Just a reminder, you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And that was a moment in women's history or part of a moment in women's history from our sister WBAI program, Joy of Resistance, talking about the Miss America pageant and the protests. But you know, segments like that uh you know really learn a lot from them and WBAI producers and hosts our program director Linda Perry are making these segments specifically for Women's History Month and they're a great example of how WBAI goes the extra mile to make our programming interesting unique and just good radio and if you like what you're hearing on Driving Forces, why not become a BAI buddy in the name of this program? It really does not take long. It can take less than a minute. I remember when I first set it up, and I'm not that tech savvy, it did not take me long at all to go onto the WBAI website at WBAI.org. And I was able to set it up, put in my credit card, goes right in my credit card each month. $15, $20, any amount. And as Celeste notes, if you, you know, you're $25 initially, that makes you a BAI member. You can set up a recurring donation in the name of this show, which of course we would love or any other show. It is super easy. It really helps us keep WBAI, the kind of vibrant community radio that New Yorkers have supported for more than 60 years. And you may not know this, or maybe you've listened to Celeste and I talk about this before, but most of the hosts you hear, on WBAI, like Celeste and me, we're volunteers. Uh, 
We give our time to the station because we believe in free speech radio. We believe in listening to guests with different viewpoints. We believe in giving important issues more than a quick headline. And of course, we believe in listening to our listeners, which we're going to do in just a moment. So before we ask you to call in, please take just a tiny part out of your day to do something really important. Go to WBAI.org and click Ways to Donate. You can keep free speech radio alive and well in the greatest city in the world. And of course, one of the best parts of WBAI is the call sections where we have people from the community calling in, talking about their feelings on the latest news, hopefully on what we're talking about here during the program. That segment is coming up in just a moment. Here is the number 212-209-2877 is the number to call 212-209-2877. What are you thinking about this Women's History Month? Do you think that women are actually making progress in getting involved in elective office? in political life? Are we where we need to be? How are we going to get there? Uh, really big questions. Lots of other stuff going on in the world. We would love to hear from you. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. While we wait for the call board to line up, you can always go to WBAI.org and give to support this station. We'll be back in a moment. But first, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, here is that wonderful classic, Danny Boy. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling, yeah, from Glen to Glen. Danny Boy Oh, Danny Boy 
And welcome back to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM. This is your weekly news show on Thursday afternoons into the early evening. It's nice to see that it is, even if it's gray outside, at least it's light outside today. Celeste, we're about to take calls from our listeners this afternoon. Anything else on your mind before we go to the listeners, Celeste? Jackie Wilson was Amazing. I I just want to say, I chose that song. I listened to a number of different versions. I said, okay, it's St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to play Danny Boy. Like, how bad could that be? How can, how can you go that wrong? But that version of that song is so astounding. So much talent there. Really glad we got to share that with you. Just want to remind you, before we go to the calls right now, the number 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. What's on your mind this St. Patrick's Day? Are you thinking about Women's History Month? Are you thinking about the 2022 midterms? Are you thinking about Andrew Cuomo possibly running for governor again? 212-209-2877 is the number to call. And I believe we have a caller on the line, so let's get to that call. Welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. What's your name and where are you from? Hey, it's Russ. Hello? 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 It's Russ. Yes, sir. What's on your mind today? Well, you know, I'd like to ask Celeste when the last time a woman candidate was asked how she would balance family and office was it like 1996? I mean, that's a rhetorical question because I think it's really setting up an atavistic straw man. But I, I like yeah, to actually, ask you well, actually, I uh, we just I would just going to interrupt uh, briefly here for a moment and thank you for your call. Uh, I have been covering politics. I've been covering news, including the majority of the time politics, for over 25 years, and I have interviewed women, including for. Uh, national magazines, for women's magazines, for metropolitan and for regional newspapers and for websites. And I have consistently, consistently over my career heard women talking about being questioned about uh, how they will balance family life and career, asked about their appearance, the way they walk, the way they talk, uh, the way they dress, lots of lots of things, uh, receiving, uh, you know, criticism of their of their uh, abilities, uh, receiving death threats, threats of uh, physical, even sexual violence. So, yeah, I'm going to say it was not last in 1996. I think it's a real problem. And I think that people do need to uh, do need to acknowledge it and uh, and to address it. I think that's something that we do have to address as a society. I do not think it is a straw man argument. And I'm getting a little bit passionate here, but I really think that if we are going to have uh, a serious conversation in society about representative government and an equal playing field, these are things that we do need to talk about. I hope to hear from you. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. This is Driving Forces here on W. BAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. I believe we have another caller holding. We're going to go to the phones right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Daryl McPherson, Bronx, New York. Happy International Women's Month and happy St. Patrick's Day. What's uh, on your mind today? Actually, uh, it, it has to do with pe- people's belief systems when they're confronted with information that's contrary to what they believe. So what I'm looking at is, especially in in the local elections in New York, um, 
as we've talked about before, I'm getting someone, I'm trying to, I'm attempting to get someone to do research on uh, using the platform Good Search to raise money for 501c3s. BAI happens to be one of the 501c3s that you can do mm-hmm. that with. But mm-hmm. if you if you listen to, uh, there was a, and I apologize, I didn't look it up before I called. There was a woman speaking, uh, an Irish woman speaking before the uh, European uh, Parliament, the Parliament of the European Union, excoriate, excoriating them for their position on uh, Ukraine. And the way that that plays back to New York, I, I was, this may sound a little disjointed, but I was calling today to get some help around benefits for my 101-year-old mother. Okay. And no one answers the phone, and when you get to the, ma- the mailbox, the mailbox is full. Now, as far as I'm understanding, uh, Mayor Adams wants to cut back on the bloated city staff. But that's pretty much straight across the board. Um, how do we address, how do we approach our um, elected people, in this case the council person, because a lot of their offices aren't taking calls because of the quote-unquote pandemic? Do you understand my frustration? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I, I absolutely do. And and I want to thank you for your call. And I think it's a really, really legitimate question because people, you know, th- this is sort of like the, the classic uh, the classic debate about government. People don't want to pay for government, uh, but they want the services, right? So it's this, compl- you know, how do we do? We, are we spending too much money? Not enough. Are we spending the money wisely and so on? And this is actually something that I'm going to be writing um, I'm, in in the middle of writing a magazine piece about this, actually, um, which is about uh, democracy and civics and media coverage of those things. And part of what we're talking about, and, you know, jump in here, Jeff, if you if you have yeah, thoughts yeah. on this. But one of the things that we did, um, you know, pretty consistently at, at, at every place that we wrote about, we called it sort of news you can use or service journalism. But I really think that one of the most important things we can do as reporters um, and editors is provide people not only with an overview of what's going on or talk about uh, problems that people are having, but give people the help they need to get in touch with with the services and with the officials that can help them solve those problems. Right. And Jeff, I'm sure you've done stories like that, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that uh, he raises a good point about the pandemic, by the way, because I did find yeah. for some time, I mean, like many of our offices, people were not in the office. We were all on lockdown, you know, and with a lot of elected offices, I was finding that when I was reaching out, I was just getting voicemails and I didn't know if anyone was checking them. And I have heard this about, you know, the difficulty in reaching folks among the pandemic. I will say Though that in the last, what, two or so months, it has gotten a lot easier. I'm finding more people, of course, like here in, uh, in non-government offices, people returning to offices and working out of them. So maybe it'll be a little easier, but I will say it always does frustrate me when I hear from someone who says, I have been trying to get my local electeds and I can't even get in touch with their office because they're supposed to be serving the public. They're supposed to be responding to constituent concerns. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think to some degree, maybe earlier on in the pandemic, we could talk about how that might have been sort of a technical problem. You know, people are taking uh, phone calls from their home, their home office or some other location, not sitting at their regular desk doing their regular thing. But after a while, I think that, you know, especially as we really start to talk about the future of work and we're talking about remote work and we're talking about hybrid work situations. Yeah, government is going to have to figure that out. So I really do appreciate that call because I think that's something that we should be talking about and I do think it's something that reporters should be writing about don't be afraid to try to contact somebody in the press if you cannot uh, if you cannot get action from your government because you are paying for for those government services I believe we have one more caller uh, WBAI you're on the air what's your name and where you call from uh, I'm Lee I'm calling from Manhattan welcome to the program thank you I'm concerned that there hasn't been enough on WBAI about the uh, coming uh, abortion ban. And this is going to really uh, impact us in the future, women in the future, more than we have any, any idea. And nobody is talking about that fact, that when, if uh, history is any indication of this, after, after the abortion uh, uh is banned, then they're going to go after manuals, and they'll go after uh, homosexuality, and we really, really have to get somehow to to the the courts to have to have women uh, being heard uh, to the people on the Supreme Court, hearing mm. what women are have gone through, what we went through. Uh, blood, sweat, and tears to to get our rights. After uh, Sh- Sherry Feinstein, she was going to have a flipper baby, and she had a terrible time uh, getting uh, the ability to to have an abortion. And that's how all of this came up. And because of that, we it it ended up with us having the right to abortion. If she hadn't had that trouble, and now they want to ban uh, women who are going to have non-viable children if they go ahead with the pregnancy, as well as victim rape. This is going to be unconscionable for women all over the country. I mean, they won't stop with with people in in, uh, the, the red states. And I and I want to I want to thank you for your call. We are coming up against the the end of the program, and we have a few announcements. But first of all, um, I definitely think that uh, reproductive rights is something that uh, we do and should and can talk about here on WBAI. And um, our engineer Reggie Johnson is mentioning that you know programs including uh, We Only Want the World, Code Pink, Joy of Resistance. Those are programs that certainly have addressed that topic, and that is something that we may well address here on Driving Forces. We We are definitely always interested in hearing about what you want to hear discussed on this program. So always feel free. You can email us, Celeste at WBAI.org and Jeff at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, different places. Let us know. And in the few moments we have, though, Jeff, you have some uh, news about what's going to be coming up on future edition of City Watch. 
Yep, City Watch is off this coming Sunday. I'll be back on City Watch on Sunday the 27th with two guests, the head of National Yiddish Theater, Dominic Valletta, talking about the new Barry Manilow, Bruce Sussman musical. And also, I mean, this is a 107-year-old theater company. He's got a lot of stories to tell. He's not 107. Uh, and also Staten Island Council member Camilla Hanks, part of our series introducing you to some of your newest elected officials. Thanks to our special guest today, Kelly Dittmar, Director of Research at the Center for American Women and Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers. Thanks, as always, to you, our listeners and our callers, and to our engineer, Reggie Johnson. One more reminder that your contribution to help keep free speech radio alive and well, WBAI, during Women's History Month and all year round is tax deductible. Please go to WBAI.org today to support this station. That's WBAI.org. If you missed any part of this program. You can check it out on iTunes or Apple, SoundCloud, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with your hosts, Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. Now stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. Thanks for listening and see you on the radio.